You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The The Fabulous Fabulous Invalid. Funky Town. You haven't said Funky Town in a long time. Not in a long time. Not in a long time. And also, it's funny how we say The Fabulous Invalid. You gotta gotta swing up. It's gotta, yeah. It's our thing. That was the first note I got from my husband. That's how we say it. To not do it? On the first, (laughs) no, on the first episode that he heard that when we yeah. did the Joel Grey, yeah. his one, oh, was it we all his gotta, we first all note it. was, yeah, you guys are, you, it's like you're apologizing for the show by not saying invalid. invalid. Or, yeah. Anyway, that was his first note. There you of go. Many yeah. notes. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. Noted. Well, I think, you know, that I, I'm very proud of the Joel Grey episode. And, and as we're sort of nearing the end of this uh, yeah. this first season, uh, with this being, what, episode 35 mm-hmm. that we're in now, of the 40 that we have planned to do, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a, we've, we've gotten better at this. <laughs> I hope so. And I hope our listeners have noticed. Yeah. Right? We've also really fulfilled our mission of, um, of doing a 360 view of the industry. Um, which I don't know of any other podcast that's done. Uh, and today we're going to you know, really go somewhere that I don't think anyone has been with our interview um, at the Schubert Archive. That was, which we just came from. Which we just came from, exactly. So yes. That was, uh, we, we felt it was best not to do our topics in their room and let them get back to work because right. it is a fully operational thing. They are, they are busy archiving and um, what was the word he used? He had a word, processing. 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 processing got process. Yeah, yeah, which I'd never, I mean, I've never been to it. I've never sat down with an archivist. You yeah. probably have in your life. I've met some, yeah, but this was, this was a really interesting conversation. I can't wait to share it with everyone. Um, but what was really cool beyond the, the interview and the substance of what we cover um, was visiting the Lyceum Theater and getting to see the uh, the apartment on top, uh, where the, uh, the 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 Schubert Archive is is located, and learning more about the history of the building. You know, um, we, we we mentioned it in the interview, but around the centennial of the Schubert organization, they produced a book um, called The Schubert's Present, 
And it's, it's a really fascinating look at each of the 17 theaters on Broadway that they operate currently. It's probably the most comprehensive look at all of the yes. Schubert theaters that you, it, it, even more so than if you were to dig deep in the Google machine. Right. Because it's all kind of beautifully laid mm-hmm. out with yeah. the photographs. And we both read the book yes. within 24 hours <laughs> of being handed the book. Right. Right. You stayed up very late. Yeah. I happened to use an afternoon right. um, to read it. But yeah, I agree with you. The, the, the theater section of the book, which is the title of the book is? The Schubert's Present. Yeah. The Schubert's Present 100, 100 Years, years of American right. Theater. Right. And you can purchase it on Amazon. And Yes, and you should. If you have any interest in the history of Broadway and Broadway theaters in particular, um, it's a real treat. Uh, like Jamie said, you're not going to find a more definitive, comprehensive collection of the, the history and the stories behind the theaters. And what's fascinating about the Lyceum, which is one of the oldest theaters on Broadway, um, is that, uh, and something that I never fully appreciated, is that it was built to be a repertory house, meaning that all functions of a singular company are, are, are meant to be performed in this one building. The other thing we didn't actually talk about with, with, um, with Mark was the, the trap door in the office, yes. which I took some photographs of and I yes. will put online. But there is, an, there is a small door in the, the apartment that looks down right onto the theater and has a perfect, it's like perfectly centered mm-hmm. view. I'm assuming that's why it is where it is. Yeah. Um, and you can, I think, clearly hear and see. Well, they said that Wednesday afternoons get quite loud with right. the Be More Chill uh, <laughs> in, uh, in the theater. Yeah. Pretty cool. Really fascinating. And, you know, if you peel back, uh, if you look behind the curtain, so to speak, of all of the Broadway theaters, they all have these fascinating histories, these amazing stories. Um, and these, in, you know, these oddities and intricacies like this little trap door. Uh, yeah. You know? The Blasco has one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. sure there are others. And there's, and there's an apartment above the Blasco. The, there's, um, there's, of course, the Schubert organization offices above the Schubert Theater, which was originally built as an apartment for the Lee August Schubert. Wilson has... Offices above yeah, it because it was the Guild Theater, right? Which is another company they, that you know housed was housed in, in one of these theaters. Yeah, was that where the Theater Guild offices were? Probably, I, yeah, I assume. Going through the book, I was amazed to learn that the Longacre Theater is actually the same age as the Schubert. And I always think of the Schubert Theater as being one of the oldest, you know, theaters on Broadway. It was built in 1913. Um, but the Longacre was built contemporaneously with it, um, and that's a gorgeous theater that you know we're obviously big fans of here. What's the oldest? The New Amsterdam. Currently, it's still operating. Oldest is the Hudson. Oh, really? Yeah. And the Lyceum is is the oldest that has been consistently used as a theater. It's never been, you know, not a theater. But I thought the Hudson Theater was built with money inherited after the woman's husband died on the Titanic. No, it it predates the Titanic. The Titanic was 1912. The Hudson was built in 1901, I think. 1902. So maybe yeah. she purchased the theater with her inheritance. Perhaps, yeah. From yeah, that no, it, it, it's, it's both the oldest and the newest Broadway theater, which is fun. If you could see the smile on Rob's <laughs> face right now as I'm he just said that. that yeah, you, you really, like, you are glowing yeah. from within. Yeah, that's yeah. very sweet. There you go. Um, wow, that, I actually did not know that. Okay, yeah. so that's, that's mm-hmm. very interesting. But, but the, the Lyceum, which was built in 1903, I believe, um, 
has the record of being the the oldest continually operated theater because for a long time the Hudson was used as, as a banquet like, hall. Right, as a banquet hall, exactly, yeah. Yeah, event space. Well, it's interesting because there's a perception, right, that the theaters on this side of Times Square, which right. would be the east side, east side right. are less desirable. Right. The Lyceum, the court... Um, Belasco. Odd, the Belasco. Oddly, though, nobody's ever considered the palace to be less desirable, and it technically is in that right. same that's zone. That's because it's right in Times it's, Square. That's true. I mean, come on. But as I've said to you a thousand times, and I will say a thousand more, I think the Belasco is the greatest theater yeah, on Broadway. That's favorite. And, and, I, and it's nice to know that that does not persist anymore, that, that, that no. false. Not at all. Yeah, the, feeling that these theaters are lesser or less desirable. In fact, I get the sense now that people fight for the Belasco. Correct, which and, was not the case at, even a decade ago. And I think the Lyceum too, because right. I think as shows shows, it seems to me shows are either getting bigger or smaller. Correct, right? And as these smaller shows are fighting for these yep. intimate houses that have these forward mm-hmm. balconies, and you know, so yep. that the the audience is really. In it, think yeah. about how much Hades Town has mm-hmm. changed from the being National, at the National, which is a fabulous theater, right. to the being at the Walter Kerr. It, it's an entirely different show, right? Just by virtue of yep. the theater. It's, well, you, it's in. you took the words right out of my head because I was going to say exactly that, right? The, the Lyceum is one of the few theaters, a handful of theaters, that has a, a balcony, right? So it's got three levels, and yet the capacity is quite small, yeah. um, despite the fact that it has three. You know, three tiers of seating. Also, think think of the Golden, right? Which is one of the smallest theaters on Broadway, is now constantly booked. Yeah, right. Well, all the I mean, name a theater that's empty. The Lunt Fontaine. Is that the one that was built as a movie palace? It was used as a movie theater for a long time, and it probably was built. I don't or was know. the Barrymore the one built as a movie theater? Barrymore was not built as a movie. Okay, theater. so I think the Lunt yeah. Fontaine may have been built as a. Yeah. I'm just going to say things that I have no backup. I know it was certainly used as a movie theater for a long time, and that yeah. makes sense. You feel like you're in a movie theater when yeah. you're sitting in the back of that very, very, very long and deep orchestra. Uh, okay, well, we could talk about theaters forever. Um, maybe we should cut to our interview with Mark. Yeah, I think it's time to get to Mark, but I'm also going to just look up the Fontaine. No, it was, it was built as a, as a legitimate theater, and it was built by producer Charles Dill- Dillingham, who was oddly... The gentleman on the Titanic. The no, but <laughs> on the what? <laughs> it was built by producer Charles Dillingham, and we saw a we saw a wire um, oh. correspondence oh. from wow. Charles Dillingham to JJ Schubert. That's so crazy. we saw that we saw that today, and I That's took a photograph crazy. of it, and I can put it on. I'm on, wondering online, um, but it was built as a legitimate theater. Um, amazing. Does that mean that movie theaters are illegitimate? Yes. Today, we're very happy to be coming to you from atop the Lyceum Theater in the former apartment of original theater owner Daniel Froman, which now houses the Schubert Archives. We are joined by Archive Director Mark Swartz. Thank you for coming to join us. Hi, Mark. You're welcome. Welcome to the Archive. Thank Thank you. you. Well, I'm wondering, um, to begin, if you could give us just a short overview of um, what exactly it is that the Schubert Archives are and what you do here. Okay. Uh, well, first, not to correct you right <gasps> off the bat, but it's Schubert Archive, archive. not Archives. Singular. A lot of people okay. make that mistake. Yeah. In fact, sometimes... We've been making it all week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we, have, we have email chains called uh, Schubert yeah. Archives. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, 
We were established in 1977, and we basically are the repository of over a century's worth of records for the Schubert organization, the Schubert uh, company that the brothers, the three Schubert brothers founded back in uh, 1900. And we have uh, a lot of material that dates back to pre-1900, some of their uh, brothers' activities upstate in Syracuse and uh, Rochester and that area of New York. And then when they came to the city in 1900 to start their Broadway escapades. Mm -hmm. um, and the collection continues on to the present. It's very strong on business records. We really are document and uh, a memory, collective memory of the Schubert company and all the subsidiaries that have existed over the years. And we also have some of the artistic records, the front of house things like costume designs and uh, set designs and photographs. Although the strongest part of the collection is from around 1900 to 1940 or so, which was the Schubert Brothers' heyday. Were they good about keeping their documents and their records? They did not have an archive of their own in their time, but they also weren't good about throwing things away. They were kind of pack rats. Yeah. So it was sort of a happy um, accident. Yes, definitely. So. Um, Things, was, uh, things were saved and put away and squirreled away all over the place. And that's how the archive came to be. Uh, there were literally documents and records all over the place uh, in various nooks and crannies throughout all the Schubert theaters. You know, it became apparent that there was a huge volume of material and it was all unique and it was a documentary of literally the Schubert, of the theater business in the 20th century. So the foundation talked about what to do. They thought about uh, seeing if Library of Congress or New York Public Library was interested in some of the material. Problem is it is a lot of business records and you know, generally those collections were more interested in the, the sexier stuff. Um, and nobody could guarantee that they'd keep the collection together. And I think there's also concern that this was the heart and soul of the records of this company, and the company itself didn't want to just let go of all that legacy. So they decided, they took a proposal to the Schubert Foundation board, um, and the board decided to initiate an archive project, which eventually they hoped to open up to researchers, and that's how we came to be. And everything that you have is, is in this this building here, or do you have it in other Everything is in this facilities? building. This building actually is the last surviving example of a repertory theater in New York City, and the building goes through the block from 45th to 46th Street. On this side of the block, the 45th Street side, we're right now in Daniel Froman's apartment, the man who built the theater, um, and that's our reading room and where we have some, where we do our work, our processing work. And then upstairs was originally a rehearsal studio, and that's now climate control archive space. And then on the other side of the building is the equivalent of like a 10-story building. And there are dressing rooms back there on the lower floors, but from the third floor up to the top, which is uh, about the sixth floor, is all archive storage. Oh, wow. And the very top floor is a double height loft where we keep all of our manuscript musical scores. So there's a lot of material in the building and so far everything is here. Um, you know, we do run out of space or at least begin to run out of space. So there's some talk about maybe finding us some more storage within another building within the Schubert Empire. But so far we have not had to use any kind of outside 
storage facility. Right. Well, you've mentioned that, that the thrust of the collection are business records, mm -hmm. and that you continue to expand that, um, that collection. So I'm wondering if um, present day business records are, is, is a lot of it digital versus yeah. printed. And do you keep a printed copy of, of more modern records that would primarily exist digitally? Um, we, yes and no. So far, we haven't really formulated a, a final plan for, for the disposition of digital records within the company. Well, I wish all of our listeners could be sitting in this room with us right now because it is a really, really cool space. Um, and you told us just before we sat down that we're sitting at a table that once belonged to Lee Schubert. Yes. Which is pretty amazing. Yes. It's quite a beautiful table. It's a gorgeous table. <laughs> um, I wonder um, if you could tell us if you have a, another favorite item in the collection. Um, actually, it's interesting that it comes up now um, because probably my favorite item are these things called letter copy books, which were a way that correspondence was kept. Um, they were in use between, at the end of the 19th century, and for our company, they started in 1900 and go up to 1906. Sorry, that's our doorbell. That means somebody <laughs> wants to come up. Um, anyway, the, um, these are at a time before there was even carbon paper, and probably a lot of people these days don't even know what carbon paper is. We have college kids <laughs> <I do>. in. <laughs> we have college kids in for groups, or we've had high school kids in, and they have no idea what carbon paper is even. But obviously, before photocopies, before mimeographs, before carbon paper, there were these books that you bought at a stationer's store, and um, they were bound volumes, and they contained usually several hundred pages of very thin tissue paper. And as a piece of correspondence was generated by a given office, the secretary would take the piece of paper and moisten it. And because the ink was water soluble, you placed that moistened piece of paper underneath one of these pages of tissue, and then you ran it a press over it. And when you lifted the tissue carefully off the letter, you wound up with an imprint of the letter on the tissue pages. So you wound up with these bound volumes of, you know, as many as 800 pages in a volume of each and every piece of correspondence that went out of an office in a given day. So especially for Sam Schubert, who died in 1906, 1905 actually, all of his correspondence pretty much is in these books, but it gives you a complete record because you know we're talking about a time when there were, certainly were telephones, but not everyone had one at their desk. So a lot of memos even were written between floors of a building. So you just get this running commentary of what was going on in the office 100 years ago, or well now 100 and Are they very business-like, or are they conversation? I mean, do they, do they in any way mimic the way we write correspondence today, or is it much more formal? Um, no, they, they are similar to what we write today. I mean, they're, some of them are conversational, some of them are quick, some of them go into more detail. There's one that we like to cite where um, Sam Schubert is in conversation with a road manager who's out with a production, and he's got this actor who keeps running up on his lines, who's giving them trouble, who's not dependable, and Sam says, okay, get to such and such a stop on the tour, 
And when you're there, I will have another actor waiting to step into the role, and then we can get rid of that guy. (laughs) Nothing has changed. It's nice to know. There's always somebody out there who will take your job. (laughs) And it's a good reminder that there were, they owned hundreds of theaters, right? Around the country, not just New York. Yeah, they owned, leased, operated, managed, or booked about a thousand theaters around the country um, before the Depression when they were in their prime. Um, now, keep in mind, a lot of that was booking arrangements and sure. stuff. They probably owned, we don't have an exact count, but well over 100 theaters mm-hmm. in their prime. And today it's 17, so it gives you a sense of the scale that they right. had. Right, the amount right. of correspondence that was right. involved <laughs> yes. In, yes. in keeping that operation going. Yeah. Wow. So. And these books, you said it's tissue paper that they were, they were copied it's a, Yeah, onto. it's a kind of tissue. It looks a little bit like onion skin. If I, people, if they I still remember onion, onion skin. skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could but erase it's, it's on like onion skin, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. So. Well, I, I read in, in preparing for this interview that you also have the records of Claw and Erlinger, who were right. their biggest competitors at that same right. time. Right. How did that come to be, that you would have their records? Um, it's kind yeah, of it's ironic. kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some years ago, before 42nd Street was reborn, um, this was when it was in that limbo period, we had asked to take a tour of of some of the theaters. Um, This was after, I guess, some of them had been um, taken over by eminent domain, and they were just sort of sitting there waiting to see what was going to happen. And... um, we were in the New Amsterdam Theater, and somebody said to Marianne Chack, who was the director at the time, that, you know, there are these weird boxes of material that they think used to be in the New Amsterdam, but are now just rotting away in the basement of the Sam Harris, which was next door. And did she want to see them? So they brought her over, and she saw this huge cache of boxes, and boy, they were in really rough shape. I mean, they were in these old... Um, what they used to use as filing cabinet, kind of wooden boxes with hinges, wooden and cardboard boxes. And, you know, they were filthy. There was, um, you know, uh, rat feces around, and there was all kinds of dust and who knows what, and some of them were crushed. But looking at them, she could see right away that they looked like Klan Erlanger's records, and nobody wanted them. They were going to discard them. So um, she started asking around and got Lee Silver, who was our uh, communications and public relations person involved, and they actually were, I guess they were happy to get rid of the papers and find some place to get, get them out of there. And we took them and just, you know, realized that this was this valuable little collection wow. that, like you say, is ironic because they were the Schubert's bitter competitors. Right. But here we are now the, the holders of, <laughs> of all their... Well, it's, it's from the period they moved into the New Amsterdam around 1903, 1904, which is when the, they built the building to around 1914 or 15. And it's a lot of booking records, mm-hmm. um, but they're interesting. And, and they're did, still being processed. I just, I, that was my question. Did you have, do you have to restore them, or are they, are they the, sort of as, as you found them? Most of the correspondence itself was in decent shape. The containers, the outer containers, were really bad. So right away, we rehoused everything. 
And that was a chore, like we wore gloves and masks because it really was a mess. Uh, so they now are all in acid-free folders and acid-free boxes, but in terms of going through them and entering them into the database, that's ongoing. That's ongoing. And yeah. is there any kind of comparison that happens while that's going on of the way that those gentlemen did business versus the way the Schuberts did business? You know, a lot of the, a, there are a lot of similarities, of course. A, a lot of those records are booking records, and because at the time they had the the Klein Erlanger were the theatrical syndicate they had a stronghold on booking in right. the country um, so you get a sense you know the Schubert's battled them because there was a lot of uh, discontent saying that you know the syndicate took advantage of both producers and theater owners uh, taking a share of the profits and playing favorites and that kind of thing and you can see in the correspondence there'll be some theater manager in a small town saying, you know, you're always sending me the crappy bookings. Why do I get the crappy bookings? Send me something good for a change. Um, so there was a lot of disgruntlement even within the Klonerlanger empire. But, you know, it was a business and it was efficient business. And I think the correspondence reflects that too. And, and also a lot of the theatrical wars between the Schubert's and the syndicate were played out in the press and they attacked each other and they got very vicious and very personal. And when you actually see correspondence, you realize these were just normal people. They weren't like these monsters, and they had their good sides. And they, in fact, you know, um, even though people said Erlanger could be very, you know, ruthless, he comes across sometimes in, in correspondence as, you know, perfectly nice man. <laughs> so nuts. Well, it's just like you can't believe everything you read in page six or Michael Riedel, right? right? It's all, some of it can be heightened reality or right, right. simply not true. Right, right. Some of it is true. Right. Yeah, well, it makes for better reading. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, speaking of these historic theaters um, that we now, I'm looking at a wall of, you know, the, the 17 uh, Schubert houses and their, and their original forms. Um, the Schubert Theater is, um, you know, considered by many, myself included, to be like the crown jewel of Broadway. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I think part of it is location. I mean, it has this amazing location because the alley that fronts it lets you see the, the marquee very clearly. Also, because Schubert has such continuity, and that's one of their older houses, and it's never been anything but the Schubert Theater. Um, and it was built to be their flagship, and it was named in honor of their brother Sam, who died in 1905. Um, so I think that has something to do with it. It also is a beautiful theater, and it's had a very large percentage of hit shows. Um, and it it's, has, <laughs> it, I mean, the marquee is very prominent. Right. You see it clearly from uh, Broadway, 7th Avenue. So I think those all have something to do with it. And um, because the name Schubert at one point was so synonymous with Broadway, right. it became kind of this symbol, the heart of, of Broadway. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. You touched on something um, just a minute ago that really struck me, and that is the, the continuity that the Schubert organization provides to mm-hmm. this industry and to this community. Um, and yet I was reading, um, in preparing for this interview, um, that there's an estimate that somewhere around 50 theaters from that era have been destroyed or otherwise repurposed. Uh, I'm wondering if in the pantheon of the original you know, Schubert properties, if there's one in particular that if you could snap your fingers today, you would, you would resurrect. Um, probably the Casino Theater, which I've always been really curious about. It was at 39th Street and Broadway. It's was built at the, it wasn't built by the Schuberts, but it was built in the later part of the 19th century. And it's when the center of the theater district was slowly shifting from the Herald Square area up to Times Square. Um, But it was this Moorish Victorian fantasy. It had this turret and it had really elaborate decor inside that was all Moorish influenced. And then it had a roof garden on the top where they had performances and a nightclub and served food. And um, it just looked like, I'm sure, you know, by today's standards, it wasn't particularly comfortable. It was an old theater. It had the old fashioned second balcony with the columns. Um, but it was beautiful, and it just looked so exotic. <laughs> it's, it, it seems like they had so much fun back then. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really. you think of all these theaters, you know, the, it, it seems like a lot now, but there were you know, easily double, triple, yes. maybe even quadruple the, the number yes. of theaters in this same yes. number of blocks. It must have been Well, and many, many of which had these rooftop theaters, it had yes. these, 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 or uh, restaurants. You know, there was several things one could do, I would assume, after the show. Um, and not leave the theater. Right. That's that's sort of a lost art. And I just have to say this since you brought up the lost theater, because I have to say it anytime somebody talks about a lost theater, if we could get the Mark Hellinger back, yes. I think the world would be a better place. Yeah. So we would restore I'm just throwing that out into the, into the universe. As many times as you can say it. Yeah, um, that was really too bad. It was just wrong place at the wrong time. If it held on for a few more years, it probably would have still been a theater. But at the time that, you know, they... They sold it. It just, like, nobody wanted a big old musical house. I know, it's so funny. <laughs> the good news is that it's been well-maintained. Yes. yes. We, we checked out the lobby a couple yeah. of weeks ago, it's, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's still spectacular. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's unlike any other theater, too, and, you know, that, yeah. the, the ones that remain. Do you get a lot of donated material? Um, we get some. I mean, people do call <laughs> us from time to time to donate. A lot of times people are looking to sell things, and unfortunately we don't have a big acquisitions budget. We're, a, we're actually a project of the Schubert Foundation. We're part of their educational outreach. Um, and so, you know, I explain to people we can make small purchases here and there, but if you're looking to make money, you really have to go elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so we do get small donations from time to time. Once in a while, something larger. Just last year, somebody donated a really nice portrait of David Belasco, which oh, wow. we hung in the Belasco Theater. It's oh, at the top of it? the at the top of the stairs to the mezzanine, oh. uh, right outside the ladies' room, yep. between the ladies' room and the bar. I'll have to take a look. Yeah. So to come full circle, um, what is uh, sort of the a, a day in the life of a Schubert archive? I said it right, archivist, right? <laughs> right I mean, w- right. What, what are the actual you know, activities that are happening in this office right now? 
Well, there's a lot of processing that, that we do. Um, you know, even though the archive has been around since the, as a project since the 70s and open to the public since the uh, late 80s, there still is a lot of material that needs to be processed. Things, you know, generally get inventoried or listed, but then we need to go into finer detail make, to make them accessible. We have a database system that we're always working on, uh, inputting information and processing materials. We also, you know, look at long-term projects. Where we're about to update our website, which uh, is coming up on 20 years old, so that's a, a bigger project. Um, we also publish a, an annual publication called The Passing Show that um, we work on. There's a new one scheduled to come out within the next couple of weeks, actually. And then there's researchers, obviously. We get people emailing, phone calls, uh, in-person visits to help out researchers. And just, you know, every day bring something new. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, having your offices in this building that's 115 years old has its own challenges, too. There's always, <laughs> you know, something going on with the elevator or, a, or, you know, a leak in the roof or some construction or maintenance that's being done that, and of you course, know, you have to... And you heard the doorbell. Right. That rings all day. We yeah. have to go up and down. So. And a different show playing downstairs every, you know, couple, <laughs> right. couple months or depending on... Right, know, depending on... <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. cool. So, what does the Schubert organization symbolize to you? Um, well, tradition and continuity, certainly. I mean, it is amazing that this company has been such a major presence for so long in, in this age when, you know, companies come and go, and even a lot of the old companies... Uh, Specifically, you know, think of department stores like Macy's and all of these once upon a time New York local iconic companies are now owned by big corporations and, and Schubert still is here. Um, they've had their ups and downs. There was a period in the 70s when things were, were pretty tough, but they're very resilient. And um, so continuity is a big thing. I also think... Um, that as we talked about before with the Schubert Theater, I think a lot of people equate Broadway with Schubert. So to me, <laughs> Schubert just seems like the, the heart of, of Broadway, partly because of that continuity and tradition. And also, there's something that a lot of people don't know, and that's that um, the heart of the theater district on 44th and 45th Streets, where the largest concentration of Schubert theaters are, um, originally all of those theaters were built on land that the Schuberts were leasing from the Astors, because the Astors were big landowners in this part of town. Um, and when the Schuberts built the theaters, they built them with um, a 99-year lease on the land with an option to buy. And after World War II in the 40s when theater was at one of those points where people weren't sure with the influx of television what was going to happen with theater. Um, and, and television at that time was centered in New York. Um, the television studios were looking for space to do their programming. And they approached the Astors about the theaters. And the Astors went to 
Lee and JJ and um, said, you know, if you want to sell out um, your lease, we have interest. And there was talk of even building a television s uh, city, studio city there. And instead of selling out and making a lot of money, both of them were elderly at that point, they could have taken the money and been perfectly happy, they decided to exercise their option and buy the land. And in one of the biggest real estate purchases of the time, they bought all the underlying land on 44th and 45th Street where their theaters are. If they hadn't done that, I don't know that Broadway would look anything like it does today. I mean, the whole thing might have transformed into something else. So. You know, when you say what does Schubert mean, to me it, it does mean Broadway. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. And that was probably one of the single smartest business, business decisions that was made for the company, yes. correct? Because yes. that also helped by now becoming the landowner. The, the, it enabled you to have a longevity. Yes. In addition to preserving this wonderful... Yes, yes. District of theater. The legacy. Of the that. legacy. Thank you. I couldn't yeah. find right. the word. Right. 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 That's incredible. Um, well, on that very high note, we always uh, like to end our, our um, show with uh, the same question that we ask every guest. And that is, um, what was the show or experience that you had early on in your life that made you want to work in the theater? Um, when I was very little, my parents, uh, you know, they were of that generation where Broadway show tunes were the popular music of the day. And so I remember very early on, you know, like My Fair Lady and Camelot and a um, little bit later, you know, Sound of Music um, and listening to those on record. And that's what I played as a kid. And I think even though um, when I first heard those things, I hadn't yet seen a show, I think, you know, I immediately just took to them. And then um, my uncle worked for a company that used to, at Christmas time, um, this was in Boston, but at Christmas time, especially some of the vendors that he worked with would give theater tickets away. So I think the very first show I ever saw in a theater was Kismet. Um, and I was really little, and it was, you know, from the, I think it was up in the balcony, but, you know, it was kind of magical. So, um, I guess that was the that's, start that's of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you are the first person to say Kismet, and I'm so delighted <laughs> because I, I yeah. love that show. <laughs> really? I'm not sure it were, were, would work today, but I do love that score. That would be an interesting one for encores to do. They did it. Did they? They did it several years ago with Marin Mazzi and Brian Stokes Mitchell. Wow. And I don't believe it was a success. Um, but I could be wrong about that, so don't, don't get I mad don't at me. I don't remember that. I would have liked to have seen that. I don't know yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah. probably, I mean, now it was probably 20 years ago. I mean, they were, yeah, they yeah, were yeah. it was ra around the Kiss Me Kate time, I think. You were probably. busy working on a book at that time. Probably. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. probably. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And yes, thank you. And this amazing uh, space. Thank you. And uh, we wish the best of luck to the Schubert Archive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. We just finished our visit to the Schubert Archive located in the Froman apartment above the Lyceum Theater, a hidden treasure and operation that I never even knew existed until a couple weeks ago. As we mentioned, the Schubert organization is the largest landlord on Broadway, with 17 theaters under its control and an additional six off-Broadway houses and the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. Since the dawn of the 20th century, 
the Schubert's have operated hundreds of theaters and produced hundreds of plays and musicals, both in New York City and all across the country. The Schubert organization and its affiliates also include Telecharge, the official ticketing agency for most of New York City's theaters founded in 1984, the Schubert Foundation, founded in 1945, which gives a generous annual allotment of unrestricted financial grants to help support the growth and advancement of arts-related organizations, and the Schubert Archive, founded in the 1970s as a subdivision of the Schubert Foundation. Maybe this is news to you, maybe not. At a minimum, if you know the Schubert name, it's probably because you've heard of the Schubert Theater. Still, you may be wondering, just who were the Schuberts? And what's the story behind the Schubert Theater, their flagship space on 44th Street? Well, the company was founded at the end of the 19th century by three brothers, Sam, Lee, and J.J. Schubert, Jewish immigrants from Europe who settled in Syracuse, New York. After quickly moving from selling concessions to running the box offices, then owning and leasing theaters in Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, Troy, and Utica, in 1900, Sam and Lee, followed later by J.J., moved to New York and began rapidly acquiring theaters and producing shows. At the age of 29, Sam died in a tragic and fiery railroad accident in 1905, leaving Lee and J.J. behind to lavishly expand the business, building many of the most famous theaters that are still on Broadway today, including the Winter Garden, the Imperial, the Majestic, and, of course, the Sam S. Schubert Theater, which they built in 1913 and named in honor of their dead brother, who had spearheaded their collective venture into the theater business. Lee died in 1953, and J.J. died in 1963. J.J.'s grandnephew, Lawrence Schubert Lawrence Jr., ran the company until 1973 when it passed from the Schubert family to the leadership of Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld, both of whom have since passed, but are memorialized with theaters named after them on 45th Street. But back to the Schubert. In 1909, Lee co-founded the New Theater, an art playhouse on Central Park West, later renamed the Century Theater, and then demolished. In 1911, the New Theater leased a plot of land between 44th and 45th Streets behind the Hotel Astor with the idea to build a theater. When that plan was abandoned, Lee and his new theater partner Winthrop Ames joined forces to build two new theaters on the lot, the Schubert and the Booth. In a unique architectural move, the two buildings shared a united exterior in the style of Venetian Renaissance, despite being two totally distinct auditoriums, each with their own interior style. The Schubert is a grand house, ornamented in a distinctive Renaissance style, with two balconies and a capacity just over 1,500. While the booth is decidedly more modest, with its decor of restrained classicism, and just under 800 seats. Another unique feature of these theaters was the construction of a private roadway connecting 44th and 45th Street, which cleverly allows both theaters to occupy a corner lot, despite being in the middle of a block. That roadway is, of course, Schubert Alley. Named the Sam S. Schubert Memorial Theater, Lee built an office and an apartment above the auditorium of the Schubert Theater, which later officially became the headquarters of the Schubert organization. As their most prominent and special theater, the Schubert has taken on an all-purpose use, housing everything from big flashy musicals to more quiet dramas. Opening with a production of Hamlet, over the years it hosted five Rodgers and Hart musicals, including Babes in Arms and Pal Joey, and, as Mark mentioned, a string of other big hits, like The Philadelphia Story, Can Can, Paint Your Wagon, Bells Are Ringing, Promises, Promises, and A Little Night Music. In 1962, Barbara Streisand made her Broadway debut with the Schubert in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And in 1997, the acclaimed revival of Chicago moved to the Schubert from the Richard Rogers. But the Schubert's most famous tenant will likely always be a chorus line. After considering the Winter Garden and the Barrymore, lore has it that the debate over which theater should house a chorus line, then a downtown smash of the public theater, came down to the Schubert versus the Broadhurst next door. Years later, Jerry Schoenfeld reported that director and choreographer Michael Bennett secretly wanted the Schubert, 
but settled for the Broadhurst when he learned that David Merrick planned to produce a play at the Schubert. Meanwhile, Schubert executive Phil Smith recalls that Michael Bennett secretly told Bernie Jacobs the exact opposite, that he actually really did want the Broadhurst, but would settle for the Schubert, which is essentially the same theater with just two balconies instead of one. Regardless of who was right, in the end, Merrick's show fell through, and a chorus line booked the Schubert, where it ran for 6,137 performances over 15 years, from 1975 to 1990, breaking all records to become the longest-running show on Broadway history in 1983, a title since overtaken by Cats in 1997 and The Phantom of the Opera in 2006. A chorus line at the Schubert Theater became iconic, the very definition of Broadway, from its famous sign to its use of mirrors on the marquees. But it also revitalized Broadway itself, reclaiming the glory days of the now-seedy district by making it a tourist destination. Without a chorus line, Broadway might not have bounced back from the obsolescence of the early 1970s. In 1996, a couple years after a chorus line left, the Schubert's funded a massive multi-million dollar renovation of the Schubert Theater to restore its original green and gold color scheme, integrated throughout the auditorium, and upgrade and modernize the backstage. It stands today as the most elegant and iconic theater on Broadway, and an enduring tribute to three immigrants who built an empire and both changed and defined the course of American theater. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. And a very special thank you this week goes to the Schubert Organization for letting us take a peek at the fabulous world of the Schubert Archive. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.